and welcome back, 1001 fans. And welcome to another much-requested Urban Legends episode, starring hairy hominids you never heard of, creepy stories, wild tales, and just about everything else, including funny and unusual, thrown into the pot. There is probably no greater creative writing assignment than having to come up with a good urban legend. You take a grain of truth, add names, dates, and places, wrap it all up as an event you experienced, and bada-bing, you have an urban legend. These legends can be entertaining, but often concern mysterious peril or troubling events, such as disappearances and strange objects and strange beings. They may also be a moralistic confirmation of prejudices or ways to make sense of societal anxieties, i.e., never go parking with your date in the woods. Before we begin, I'd like to give a big thanks to our new Patreon subscribers this past month. It's so very good to have you with us, and I see you're enjoying our new Prime Cuts and our Best Of series. So, thanks again. And now, prepare to be shocked and scared out of your wits with Urban Legends 8. And some of these stories are explicit, so beware. Have you been hearing a strange bleeding outside your home? Or been attacked by a horny cryptid lately? If so, you may have been a victim of Goatman. According to cryptids.fandom.com, the Goatman is a humanoid cryptid most commonly associated with Louisiana, Maryland, and Texas. It's described as a seven-foot-tall hybrid creature, part man and part goat. Some claim it's a relative of the New Orleans evil chupacabra-like cryptid called the Grunch not to be confused with the Grinch. The urban legends of them often tells of their killing young couples in parked cars or scouring neighborhoods killing family pets. There are also tales of them breaking into people's houses and attacking its occupants. And according to this legend, many swear that it does not matter if you're a man or woman, he will overtake you and try to bleep you nonetheless. When scared teenagers whisper about Goatman, not all agree on the form he takes. Some say he was a man who kept goats and went mad after teenagers killed his flock, driven to seek revenge against any youngster. And you can add the Stranger Things element here. Perhaps the strangest version traces the origin of Goatman to the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center, a sprawling USDA facility in Maryland anchored by a big brick building appointed with white columns. In this version, a mad scientist is conducting experiments on a goat when something goes horribly wrong, turning him into a half-man, half-goat beast that is, naturally, hungry for blood. Even though we know goats eat only grass, weeds, and empty beer cans. He then went on a spree, wielding an axe, perhaps inspired by Bunny Man, who starred in an earlier version of Urban Legends here. And he attacked parked cars. The obvious moral here being, uh-uh, don't go parking in the woods. Goatman may not be as famous as his cryptid cousins Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, but Goatman has a devoted following. The stories began surfacing a long, long time ago, according to Dr. Barry Pearson, a folklorist at the University of Maryland, which happens to be Prince George's County and is home to a Goatman archive. The earliest sightings date back to 520 B.C., he says, 
as the satyrs of Greek mythology who held an almost identical role despite the 3,000 years or so that separate us. Apparently, Goatman has close cousins, starting with the Waterford Sheep Man, an abominable creature that terrorized the small rural town of Waterford, Pennsylvania in the early 1970s. It lurked in farm fields, stalking the unwitting animal in a desire to tear it apart and feed on its flesh and blood. Hundreds of people witnessed this creature. It's also referred to as Goat Man. The story continues, though. Marilyn knew of the Goat Man legend as a teenager in the 1970s, but along with the stories, she had also seen it with her own eyes on more than one occasion. She writes, I lived on Baghdad Road, and I saw this figure running across the dirt road at one point near the old sawmill. She remembers that at the time there was much talk about the legend, with many people catching a glimpse of the creature darting across the road or into the brush along the farm fields. She had a second encounter with the monster when she was 17. She writes, He was there that one night I drove home, and right before I turned into my driveway, there he was, running across the road and into the woods. And another cousin of Goatman, Meet the Pope Lick Monster. He's a legendary part man, part goat, and part sheep creature reported to live beneath a Norfolk Southern Railroad trestle over Floyd's Fork Creek in the Fisherville area of Louisville, Kentucky. In most accounts, the Pope Lick Monster, named after Pope Lick Creek below the Pope Lick train trestle, appears as a human-goat hybrid with the grotesquely deformed body of a man. It has powerful, fur-covered goat legs an alabaster-skinned face with an aquiline nose and wide-set eyes. Short, sharp horns protrude from the forehead, nestled in long, greasy hair that matches the color of the fur on the legs. So be on the lookout for him, especially if you live near the Fisherville area of Louisville, Kentucky. Urban legend number two is called The Red Room by Storyteller. I heard about this while I was doing a research project on the deep web. There are a few variations, but here's what I found on the Red Room. The Red Room is a pop-up that will appear on your screen while either trying to find information on the Red Room or using the deep web. It's a red pop-up with Japanese letters that translate, Do you like the Red Room? Which is read aloud in English by a child's voice. This feature apparently inspired a young schoolgirl in Japan to murder one of her peers. Variations of the story include that the person who views the pop-up will either be killed by some demon or will go insane. A red room also refers to an onion website with a webcam showing the torture of an ISIS terrorist. This site contains a chat room where you can input torture commands. I was not able to find any red rooms using any onion browsers, this writer says, and I didn't want to go too deep. I don't want the FBI at my house, so if they're real, I wasn't able to find one. Personally, I think red rooms are nothing more than legends, but the deep web holds some crazy stuff, so you never know. And that brings us to urban legend number three. The question, is there a deep web or a dark web? And is the dark web as dangerous as some people say it is? To find out, we went to Norton, the Internet security people, for an answer. As it turns out, yes, there is a deep web and a dark web. 
The deep web contains information about you and others that is supposed to remain private, like medical records and other information that you hope would stay private. The Norton article tells us it is not dangerous, but there is no need to explore it, and curiosity can often get you in trouble. Browsing the dark web, they say, can be dangerous. There are people and things on the dark web that you need to avoid. Here are a few of them. Viruses. Some websites can infect your devices with viruses, and there are a lot of different types of viruses to watch out for on the dark web. Remember to never download anything from websites you don't trust. There are hackers there. You can find hacker forums on the dark web. You can hire computer hackers to do illegal activities. Not surprisingly, a lot of these people would be willing to hack your devices. There's webcam hijacking. A website on the dark web may try to get a remote administration tool, also known as a rat, onto your device. That can lead to someone hijacking your webcam, essentially letting them see what you're up to through your device camera lens. It's a smart practice to cover your webcam with a piece of paper or tape if you're not using it. And they add, dark web content may often be illegal. Anytime you're in the company of illegal drugs, illegal content, and other sordid online activities, you could risk landing in legal trouble. A mistake in keystroke or simple curiosity might not be a reliable defense. Here are two examples of dark web content and activities that would raise legal concerns. Sharing pictures and videos of child pornography. In one FBI arrest, the perpetrator traded material on a website with more than 100,000 registered users. The FBI got him. Or purchasing illegal goods or services. If you buy illegal drugs or hire a hitman, you can be arrested for committing an illegal act. But browsing a website that offers those two things would not be illegal. Do's and don'ts, Norton lists, on the dark web. Law enforcement officials have an interest in stopping illegal activity on the dark web. When they do, there are legal consequences. Here are some notable cases where law enforcement took down criminals doing business on the dark web. The most famous being the Silk Road. This online black market sold illegal drugs. It was launched in 2011. Total revenue was estimated at 1.2 billion U.S. Founder Ross Ulbright was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Then there was Alpha Bay. This was another online black market launched in 2014. It grew to an estimated 10 times the size of Silk Road. Merchandise ranged from drugs to breached data. Alleged founder Alexandre Cazes was arrested. He was found dead in a Thai jail cell, apparently by suicide, several days later. Hansa. This online black market expanded after Alphabet was shut down and vendors moved to that platform. But Dutch police had already infiltrated the marketplace and seized information tied to its operation. And they shut down Hansa in 2017. Best advice? Avoid both the deep and dark web if you don't want trouble on your doorstep. And speaking of trouble, here's urban legend number four, The Legends of the Ouija Board. This was published in 2012 by David Wargo, TN Editor, TNOnline.com. 
Is the Ouija board a portal to the unknown, a guidepost to the unconscious, or an opening to a supernatural world? The modern Ouija board is a toy manufactured and trademarked by Hasbro and introduced in 1890 by Elijah Bond. At its beginnings, the toy was a harmless diversion, according to the website Wikipedia, until spiritualist Pearl Curran introduced its use as a divining tool during World War I. As its use became widespread, the urban legends and stories of its alleged demonic, supernatural power also spread. The board today has become reviled by most Christian groups and believers as a source of evil and has been burned throughout the United States at various times. The urban legends surrounding the Ouija board are several. One seems to be able to find mutual friends who have had unusual or weird experiences with the board. Some folklore accounts state that the board appeared to open a line of communication with some evil entity, and out of fear, its owners tried to throw it away only to have it reappear or they attempt to burn it, only to find it won't burn, or it unnaturally explodes. Personally, the writer says, I have not encountered anyone who has witnessed these effects in attempting to dispose of it firsthand, so to me, they still remain urban legends. While I do not know of anyone having problems getting rid of a board, I have had friends relate some personal experiences to me. One person I do know claimed that during a session, a green face appeared in the corner of the room in which they were experimenting and they hastily put the board away and turned on the lights. Another person has shared with me an experience in which they were toying with the board, only to hear a screech, looked up the stairs to see a cat come flying down the staircase through the air as if it was thrown by a shadow seen momentarily at the top of the stairs. I have attempted to use the board in the past, but have found it to be unsuccessful and a momentary diversion. If you're not familiar with the board, it's a flat board that has the alphabet, numbers, a yes and no, and some other graphics and symbols on it. A planchette, or reading device, is placed on the board, and the sitters place their fingers on it. The idea is the planchette will move around the board spelling words and answering questions. The Hasbro version uses a plastic heart shape with a window in the board. They've been used for hundreds of years, if not longer, and before Hasbro marketed it, they were made using any flat surface that could be written upon, and the planchette was created by simply using a drinking glass. The board is in the family of divination tools, including the pendulum and spirit writing. For those who grant it supernatural origins, the belief is the board is an opening to the spirit world that allows one to communicate with those who have passed on from the physical realm or entities that have never been human. Originally, spirit writing used a similar technique in which the sitter would entrance themselves and the pen they were holding would begin to write. With a spirit board, the sitter would have their hands on the planchette and someone would transcribe the messages. The most famous case involving the dictated writings of a supposed spirit is that of Patience Worth, who came through the board and spoke to Pearl Curran, dictating poems and novels to her over a twenty-year period. Other authors and poets have attributed writings to spirits through the board, including Emily Grant Hutchings, who claimed Mark Twain's spirit dictated a novel to her through that divining tool. Detractors of the board claim that it is nothing more than a way of observing the idiomotor response in people, which is the involuntary muscle movements that occur in everyone, causing the planchette to move on the board. 
This response, coupled with the subconscious, may be allowing a window into the subconscious mind and giving it a platform to speak to the person. Scientists believe there is nothing spiritual involved. In fact, a report in New Scientist discusses the research of Helene Gauchot, who is using the board to study the subconscious mind. The writer continues, I think the issue really boils down to one of whether the spirit world exists, and if so, does it attempt to communicate with the physical plane? I'm convinced that at the outset the board is nothing more than a device accessing one's subconscious. However, I also believe there is a spiritual plane with angels and demons. My belief, the writer continues, is that we can lull our minds and our spiritual gates into a submissive state that will allow an opening for these entities to exploit. And once they do, it is extremely difficult to close the door. Science is a wonderful thing, but I believe not everything is lab-friendly, and there is more to the universe than physical laws. There is an innate part of the universe that I believe ties us all together, and in the right circumstances, the board can be a doorway to that unseen world. Would I use a board today? Writes David. Perhaps but only with some caution and adequate spiritual protection through prayer. I believe for the most part it is a toy, but I'm cautious that it could access more. It's sometimes better to be safe than sorry. My answer at 1001, and this is my opinion, born of experience, be very scared of Ouija boards. They can attract unwelcome guests from other dimensions, and those guests are not the kind you want to be hanging around. Don't even keep one of them in the house. Just saying. Urban legend number five is from Urban Legends Online. It's called Bride and Seek. During the wedding reception of a young couple, the guests decided to play a drunken game of hide-and-seek. It was decided that the groom was it, and he eventually found everyone except his new bride. The longer he searched, the more frustrated he became, and he was soon furious, thinking she had left. He decided the game wasn't funny anymore, and went home without his bride. Well, weeks went by, and he accepted that she'd had second thoughts and went on with her life, so he did the same. A few years later, a cleaning lady dusted off an old trunk in the attic of the building where the reception had taken place, and out of curiosity, she opened it. Inside the trunk was the rotted body of the missing bride who'd apparently become locked in the trunk that she'd chosen to hide in. Whether she'd suffocated or starved was unknown, but her face was frozen in a scream. Urban legend number six is called Rat Dog. The truck driver's wife works in Boston on the docks where this little white dog comes around at noon and everyone feeds it a little something from their lunch. As the legend goes, the wife went home and asked her husband if he would mind if she got a dog. She told him about the stray that everyone's been feeding. He said that he didn't think she wanted a dog. She said it would be nice company since he was away from home a lot, so he agreed. The next time she went to work, she saw the little stray as usual. Everyone gave him something to eat, and she coaxed the dog into her car and brought it home. Then she washed and cleaned and bathed him, and the dog slept with her in their bed that night and the next. The next day she came home from work and found that the dog had eaten her beloved cat. 
Horrified, she was confronted with the gruesome sight of a large spot of blood on the floor, and all that remained was her cat's skull sitting nearby. The panicked woman called the veterinarian, who told her to bring the dog right in. He couldn't do anything for the cat, but the bones from the cat could do injury to the dog. She brought the dog in to see the vet, and was in the waiting room when one of the vet techs nervously asked her to step into one of the rooms, immediately. When she got in the room, the vet asked her where she got the dog, and she told her it was a stray she'd found where she works near the docks in Boston. The vet told her the animal needed to be put down immediately. The stray she had taken in was not a dog, but a 40-pound Cambodian rat that had come in from one of the ships in the harbor. The rat was so big that it looked like a small dog with a little snub tail. And now urban legend number seven. This one's called The English Professor. We're going to take a break from the strange and macabre and add some humor. This one, not an urban legend, but a great funny story called The English Assignment, and it's backed by popular demand from our urban legends number two. And this is the story. It's written by Sharon Melniser. It's from Tuesday's Globe and Mail, published Tuesday, September 4th, 2007. On the Tuesday morning following Labor Day, rather than listening for the 850 bell to ring, I will be casually chatting over a steaming cup of sweet, frothy something with a close friend and former colleague at a neighborhood coffee shop. It won't be our first day one of school spent not at school, but our conversation will doubtless return to reminiscing about our days in the classroom. I gave my grade 12 English students a memorable assignment in the late 1990s, one that I used again several times. I found the idea buried in a professional journal. It's a prime example of John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. An English professor from the University of California described it in her instructions to a first-year English class. Today we will experiment with a new form called the tandem story. The process is simple. Each person will pair off with the person sitting next to his or her immediate right. As homework tonight, one of you will write the first paragraph of a short story. You will email your partner that paragraph and send another copy to me. The partner will read the first paragraph and then add another paragraph to the story and send it back, also sending another copy to me. The first person will then add a third paragraph and so on, back and forth. Remember to reread what has been written each time in order to keep the story coherent. There is to be absolutely no talking outside of the emails, and anything you wish to say must be written in the email. The story is over when both agree a conclusion has been reached. Here is what two of my students turned in. Let's call them Maria and Neil. The Tandem Story. First paragraph by Maria. At first... Betty couldn't decide which kind of tea she wanted. The chamomile, which used to be her favorite for lazy evenings at home, now reminded her too much of Bruce, who once said, in happier times, that he also adored chamomile. But she felt she must now, at all costs, keep her mind off Bruce. His possessiveness was suffocating, and if she thought about him too much, her asthma started acting up again. So chamomile was out of the question. She switched to chai. Second paragraph by Neil. 
Meanwhile, Advance Sergeant Bruce Harrington, leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Zontar III, had more important things to think about than the neurotic meanderings of an airheaded, asthmatic bimbo named Betty, with whom he had spent one sweaty night over a year ago. A.S. Harrington to Geostation 17, he said into his transgalactic communicator. Polar orbit established. No sign of resistance so far. But before he could sign off, a bluish particle beam flashed out of nowhere and blasted a hole through his ship's cargo bay. The jolt from the direct hit sent him flying out of his seat and across the cockpit. Later in the story, Maria. Bruce struck his head and died almost immediately, but not before he felt one last pang of regret for psychically brutalizing the one woman who had ever had feelings for him. Soon afterwards, Earth stopped its pointless hostilities towards the peaceful farmers of Zontar III. Congress passes law permanently abolishing war and space travel, Betty read in her newspaper one morning. The news simultaneously excited her and bored her. Even later in the story, Neil. Little did she know, but she had less than ten seconds to live. Thousands of miles above the city, the Meribian mothership launched the first of its lithium fusion missiles. The dim-witted, bleeding-heart peaceniks who pushed the unilateral aerospace disarmament treaty through Parliament had left Earth a defenseless target for the hostile alien empires who were determined to destroy the human race. The Prime Minister, in his top-secret mobile submarine headquarters on the floor of the Arctic Ocean, felt the inconceivably massive explosion, which vaporized poor, pathetic, stupid Betty. Maria "'This is absurd, Mrs. Miniser. "'I refuse to continue this mockery of literature. "'My writing partner is a violent, chauvinistic, semi-lyrate adolescent. "'Neil. "'Yeah? "'Well, my writing partner is a self-centered, tedious neurotic "'whose attempts at writing are the literary equivalent of Valium. "'Oh, shall I have chamomile tea? "'Or shall I have some other sort of freaking tea? "'Oh, no. What am I to do?' I'm such an airheaded bimbo who reads too many Jackie Collins novels. Maria. Brain dead jerk. Neil. PMS witch. Maria. Drop dead, you Neanderthal. Neil. In your dreams, you flake. Go drink some tea. It was now time for the teacher to interject. Mrs. Melniser. I really like this one. Good work. Since the objectives of the assignment focused on the appreciation of another's point of view the building of respect for another's opinion, and heightening motivation to continue a meaningful dialogue, what took place seemed to the students a dismal failure. However, in terms of meeting the objectives I had set for the assignment, and fully knowing where their mistakes were going to take us, the exercise couldn't have been more successful, or more fun. Every good teacher, every effective leader for that matter, knows that it is from our mistakes we all learn. It follows, then, that failure is something to celebrate. It is the very soil in which learning grows, and knowledge blooms. Both students received top marks. Sharon Melniser lives in Winnipeg. Urban legend number eight. True or false? The CIA actually gave rise to the 60s drug culture in America. I can remember when rumors of this were being categorically denied by our government. But this urban legend is true. This is from History.com. MK Ultra was a top-secret CIA project in which the agency conducted hundreds of clandestine experiments, sometimes on unwitting U.S. citizens, to assess the potential use of LSD and other drugs for mind control, 
information gathering, and psychological torture. Though Project MKUltra lasted from 1953 until about 1973, the details of this illicit program didn't become public until 1975 during a congressional investigation into widespread illegal CIA activities within the United States and around the world. In the 1950s and 60s, the height of the Cold War, the United States government feared that Soviet, Chinese, and North Korean agents were using mind control to brainwash U.S. prisoners of war in Korea. In response, Alan Dulles, director of the Central Intelligence Agency, approved Project MKUltra in 1953. The covert operation aimed to develop techniques that could be used against Soviet bloc enemies to control human behavior with drugs and other psychological manipulators. The program involved more than 150 human experiments involving psychedelic drugs, paralytics, and electroshock therapy. Sometimes the test subjects knew they were participating in a study, but at other times they had no idea, even when the hallucinogens started taking effect. Many of the tests were conducted at universities, hospitals, or prisons in the United States and Canada. Most of these took place between 1953 and 1964, but it's not clear how many people were involved in the tests. The agency kept notoriously poor records and destroyed most MKUltra documents when the program was officially halted in 1973. The CIA began to experiment with LSD, lysergic diethylamide, under the direction of agency chemist and poison expert Sidney Gottlieb. He believed the agency could harness the drug's mind-altering properties for brainwashing or psychological torture. Under the auspices of Project MKUltra, the CIA began to fund studies at Columbia University, Stanford University, and other colleges on the effects of the drug. After a series of tests, the drug was deemed too unpredictable for use in counterintelligence. MKUltra also included experiments with MDMA, known as ecstasy, mescaline, heroin, barbiturates, metamphetamines, and psilocybins, known as magic mushrooms. Operation Midnight Climax was an MKUltra project in which government-employed prostitutes lured unsuspecting men to CIA safe houses where drug experiments took place. If that sounds like fiction, it wasn't the CIA did that. And that all came out in trial. The CIA dosed the men with LSD and then, while at times drinking cocktails behind a two-way mirror, watched the drug's effects on the men's behavior. Recording devices were installed in the prostitutes' rooms disguised as electrical outlets. Most of the Operation Midnight Climax experiments took place in San Francisco, Marin County, California, and in New York City. The program had little oversight and the CIA agents involved admitted that a freewheeling, party-like atmosphere prevailed. During this time, Haight-Asbury in San Francisco and Greenwich Village in New York became known as the places to go to get drugs and tune out, and the hippie culture sprang from these centers. An agent named George White wrote to Gottlieb in 1971, Of course I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, and cheat, steal, deceive, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? Doesn't say much about the CIA in the 50s and 60s, does it? Frank Olson was a scientist who worked for the CIA, 
1953 CIA retreat, Olson drank a cocktail that had been secretly spiked with LSD. A few days later, on November 28, 1953, Olson tumbled to his death from the window of a New York City hotel room in an alleged suicide. The family of Frank Olson decided to have a second autopsy performed in 1994. A forensics team found injuries on the body that had likely occurred before the fall. The findings sparked conspiracy theories that Olson might have been assassinated by the CIA. After prolonged legal proceedings, Olson's family was awarded a settlement of $750,000 and received a personal apology from President Gerald Ford and then-CIA Director William Colby. Ken Kesey, author of the 1962 novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, volunteered for MK Ultra experiments with LSD while he was a college student at Stanford University. Kesey later went on to promote the drug, hosting LSD-fueled parties that he called acid tests. Acid tests combined drug use with musical performances by bands including the Grateful Dead and psychedelic effects such as fluorescent paint and black lights. These parties influenced the early development of hippie culture and kick-started the 1960s psychedelic drug scene. Other notable people who reportedly volunteered for CIA-backed experiments with LSD include Robert Hunter, the Grateful Dead lyricist, Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, and James Joseph Whitey Bulger, the notorious Boston mobster. In 1974, New York Times journalist Seymour Hersh published a story about how the CIA had conducted non-consensual drug experiments and illegal spying operations on U.S. citizens. His report started the lengthy process of bringing long-suppressed details about MKUltra to light. The following year, President Ford, in the wake of the Watergate scandal and amid growing distrust of the U.S. government, set up the United States President's Commission on CIA Activities within the United States to investigate illegal CIA activities, including Project MKUltra and other experiments on unsuspecting citizens. The commission was led by Vice President Nelson Rockefeller and is commonly referred to as the Rockefeller Commission. The Church Committee, helmed by Idaho Democratic Senator Frank Church, was a larger investigation into the abuses of the CIA, the FBI, and other U.S. intelligence agencies during and after the resignation of President Richard M. Nixon. And now, urban legend number nine, the Buggy Barber. A man living in Kansas hated going to the barber. Thus, he never cut his hair. For 30 years, his red hair grew and grew until it finally reached his ankles. His wife begged him to cut his hair where people smirked and stared wherever they saw him. He finally agreed, since his hair was annoying and got in his way. When he arrived at the barber shop, he sat down nervously and waited for his haircut to begin. Halfway through the cut, he jumped up, screaming, and ran out of the shop. His wife found him dead hours later on their doorstep, a huge nest of red-backed spiders crawling out of his tangled locks. When the barber was cutting his hair, he'd upset a nest of poisonous spiders living in the man's hair that bit him to death. Another version of that story. Lily had to go to a very grand party, so she saved up some money to get her hair done. She went into the salon, and when the stylist asked what she wanted done to her hair, Lily showed her a picture of a model with her hair done up like candy floss. The hairdresser put Lily's hair into this elaborate hairdo. 
She gladly paid her and enjoyed herself at the party that night. She got so many compliments on her hair, she decided to keep the style as long as she could, and she sprayed it every day and slept on it at night. Three weeks later, Lily's head began to feel sore. She went back to the salon and asked them to cut her hair, and as the stylist began to work, Lily felt a sharp pain. Thinking the woman had cut her with her scissors, she leapt from the chair and ran out of the salon. Lily was later found dead at her house. A poisonous spider had crawled into her hair while she slept and laid its eggs. When the hairdresser upset the nest, the spiders had bitten her to death. Urban Legend Number 10 from MentalFloss.com called The Main Hermit For decades, people who vacationed in Central Maine's North Pond area were puzzled by items that would go missing. Batteries and food from cabins, flashlights from camping tents. Rumors spread that a permanent fixture of the area was foraging for sustenance and supplies. It turned out the rumors were right. For 27 years, Christopher Knight lived alone in the woods, keeping tabs on the hikers, canoeists, and other temporary residents of his grounds. When he was confronted by a game warden in 2013, Knight admitted he was responsible for an average of around 40 robberies a year. Despite the likely protestations of family and friends who dismissed tales of a hermit lurking somewhere in the woods, his identification proved that someone had been watching and waiting for nearly three decades. In one of our early urban legends, we did a story on Bunny Man. If you lived in or around Virginia in the 70s, you were probably exposed to the story of Bunny Man. In the tale, an escaped mental patient takes to gutting bunnies and hanging them from a bridge underpass. Later, the maniac is said to have graduated to gutting and hanging teens in a similar manner. Locals were cautioned to never be caught near the underpass, which is now known to most people as Bunny Man Bridge, especially on Halloween night. This story likely spawned from the real presence of a roving madman in the area. In October 1970, a couple reported seeing a man dressed in a white suit and wearing bunny ears, who began yelling at them that they were on private property. To punctuate his point, he threw a hatchet at their windscreen, apparently shattering it. There was a second sighting of Bunny Man two weeks later when a security guard spotted a hatchet-wielding man chipping away at a porch railing. Police tried unsuccessfully to locate the man. While he didn't disembowel anyone, the thought of an adult wielding both a hatchet and a pair of rabbit ears somehow manages to be just as disturbing. And now we have an update on Bunny Man. The headlines reading, Man Found Dead in Fairfax County Near Urban Legends Spot. This is dated April 18, 2018. An investigation is underway after a man was found dead Wednesday morning in an apparent homicide, Fairfax County Police said. He was found along the 6500 block of Colchester Road in Fairfax Station by a nearby resident just before 7 a.m. His body was about 900 feet from what is known as the Bunny Man Bridge. The railroad bridge, as we all know, is part of an urban legend which draws hordes of teenagers to the rural area of Fairfax County every Halloween. The road was closed for hours as crime scene detectives poured over the spot where the body was found along the two-lane winding road. Responding units noticed upper-body trauma to the victim and summoned rescue. Rescue determined that he was dead on the scene. 
Of particular interest to investigators was the embankment. A crime scene photographer took many pictures of what he found there. The homes in the area are spread out, each on several acres. Some people have horses and ride them around. One neighbor said, Heard they found a body, don't know much else. Police said no weapons were found on the victim's body. They also couldn't say where the murder took place. Another neighbor said, This is scary in a way. I used to board horses in this area. Now I live about two miles away. I ride this area, and I know people up here. And yeah, it's scary. I just want to make sure the people that I know are okay, said one person. Police said they don't believe there's any threat to the public, and certainly it's ironic it popped up near Bunny Man Bridge, said another witness. No one's made any connection between the tail and the homicide. Besides upper body trauma, police are not saying how the man died, and that will be determined by the medical examiner, the article reads. And this one, the cannibal prospector, as told by Ross Marcand. When I was a college student at the University of Colorado, we had Alfred Packer days where we'd partake in all kinds of festivities. Alfred Packer was this intrepid prospector who lived during the 1800s. He took 10 or 15 men over a particularly treacherous mountain pass in search of gold, and that's when things began to fall apart. The men all started to turn on each other, and specifically on Packer. His solution for putting an end to the mutiny? He killed his men and roasted their bodies up over the campfire, and then he feasted. When he returned home alone about two months later, the townspeople were asking where his party was. Since he left with a pretty large group, most of the town was growing concerned about their friends and family members. Packer told the townspeople that the men had killed each other and that he had survived the bloodshed. He admitted to living off their flesh, but expressed that it was purely a matter of survival. The town, of course, was taken aback. Parker explained that he was only trying to survive, and he wanted to go about his normal life. A lot of the townspeople wondered if there should be a formal inquiry into the situation, but Packer assured them that he was telling the truth, and an investigation wasn't necessary. But the devastated families weren't convinced. But here's the thing. No one ever found the bodies. They found bodies that they said might have belonged to Parker's victims, but they couldn't be certain. Because there were so many miners and prospectors dying along those trails in the 1800s, it was impossible to tell. The legend says that Alfred Packer hunts people to this day out by Boulder Canyon. As UC students, the rumor spread that if you were ever out there by yourself, you might run into Alfred Packer and end up as his next meal. So naturally, thrill-seekers would go up to the area where he did most of his killings. There were a lot of people who went on that trail and also tried to find the ghosts of people he'd eaten. And on Alfred Packer days, the joke at UC was that if you were doing the cafeteria run, you might just be eating human flesh. And this urban legend called Charlie No-Face. Imagine finding yourself outside and alone in the dark on a residential street. You hear footsteps approaching. Suddenly a man with a misshapen face appears. You run, terrified beyond words. You spread the story of the man with no face throughout Pennsylvania. Charlie No-Face, also called the Green Man, was actually a man named Ray Robinson, and he was no figment of anyone's imagination. 
Born in 1910, Robinson was disfigured as the result of an electrical accident at the age of eight. He touched active wires, which effectively maimed him. Knowing his appearance could be disconcerting, Robinson took to taking strolls after dark. He often walked a path along Route 351 in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. While his intentions were honorable, encountering Robinson in the dead of night inevitably led to spreading stories about a boogeyman haunting the town. Robinson died in 1985. And this one, the all-too-real corpse decoration. Notorious outlaw Elmer McCurdy took on a second life following his death. In 1911, the embalmed course of McCurdy became a grim sideshow attraction throughout Texas, with people eager to see the famed criminal on display in funeral parlors and carnivals. Though it's hard to document all his travels, he eventually wound up in Long Beach, California, where someone apparently mistook him for a prop. McCurdy was hung in a funhouse at the New Pike Amusement Park. His humanity discovered only after a crew member on the $6 million man which was filming there in 1976, tried to adjust him, dislodging his very real arm. The following year, his corpse was put to a proper rest. And this one, giant bird or mothman? Enormous birds have a place in many American Indian legends. With wingspans of greater than 20 feet, the Thunderbird is larger than any avian that has existed for 10,000 years. This is when the Territorn flew the skies of North America. However, according to eyewitnesses, these enormous prehistoric birds may still be seen in the skies of Virginia today. In 2013, in New Kent County, Virginia, a witness reported seeing an enormous bird standing in the middle of the highway. As the witness pulled around a corner, the bird stood in the center of the road. It was taller than the witness's car. Its wings stretched across the highway. The vehicle startled the bird and it took off, the flapping of its wings almost deafening. Birds of this size have been reported in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas, and New Mexico. And there's a similar legend called the Snallygaster. Have you ever heard of that? As far back as the 1700s, Virginia residents claimed a giant reptilian bird would appear in the sky and swoop down to attack pets, game, livestock, and sometimes children. Eyewitness descriptions of the Snallygaster sound like that of a pterosaur, an enormous flying monster with a wingspan of 25 to 30 feet, a long beak, and leathery skin that looks like a reptile. However, the Snallygaster also has tentacles, talons of steel, and carries with it the pungent scent of death. Its shriek resembles a train whistle. Reports of the Snallygaster continued until the 1930s, when they became sporadic, but they appeared again in 1948 and 1973. Maybe they're due to appear again soon. Then we have a report not too far from where I live here. This report's from southern Virginia near the Great Dismal Swamp. An eight-year-old boy reported rolling over in bed one night and looked out his window only to come face to face with a monster. The creature, he claimed, had to be standing on its hind legs to be looking into his window. It had a human-like face except for the nose, which was a snout like a dog's. The beast stared at him with yellow eyes. The boy shot out of bed and spent the rest of the night sleeping in his mother's room. This one's from Louisiana, the vampire Comte de Saint-Germain, one of the most popular urban legends out there. What makes it creepy? 
As far as spooky stuff goes, Louisiana does not rely solely on voodoo, hoodoo, ghosts, and Woody Harrelson's accent from the true detective. Like any debonair, bloodsucker, male vampire worth his garlic, Jacques St. Germain's hobby was seducing attractive young females in New Orleans, only to promptly drink their blood. By some accounts, he was born in the early 1700s, and still lives. In others, he's been alive since Christ. After dying in 1783, he was spotted all over Europe before reappearing to terrorize New Orleans in 1902. He's still on his blood-drinking binge in the French Quarter today, though now he just goes by Jack. The Comte de Saint-Germain was a real person. He was an alchemist, an all-round high-society snob who befriended a laundry list of famous 18th-century luminaries. He ran with the crowds with Catherine the Great and the philosopher Voltaire, who said he was a man who never dies and who knows everything. He has been tied to several murders, and in the 1970s, a French pseudo-celebrity named Richard Chanfray publicly claimed to be the infamous Saint Germain. But then, he died of a drug overdose in 1983. Or did he? Hello, 1001 fans. I hope you enjoyed this collection of the strange and macabre. July and August are new subscriber months, so we ask that you subscribe to any of the free podcast hosts, from Apple Podcast or from the Android side, Player.fm, Stitcher.com, CastBox.fm, TopPodcast.com, or a host of any others. And keep in mind that we have four great 1001 shows. This one, 1001 Heroes, then 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, where we do classic stories like Treasure Island, and lately, Tarzan of the Apes, which is getting a huge following. That one really surprised me. And 1001 Radio Days, where we do a lot of detective radio shows and occasional westerns and dramas. Thank you very much for being great fans. We appreciate your reviews, and we appreciate your listening and sharing. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.